And as you sit, I uh, invite you to pray with me today. So let us pray. God of love, we give you thanks that we come together to hear a word from you. Words and perspectives from different places and different communities and different cultures. All in hopes that we might be transformed into your presence in the world. So speak to us this day. And that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God. Amen. Amen. Well, our scripture reading, we find ourselves uh, this today is officially starting this series. Last week, we were uh, talking about Pentecost and about how God's goal for humanity was not uniformity, but to gather together in our diversity. And what I mean by that is that God's goal for humanity was not that we are one and the same, like little like mirror images of each other, but that we gather together with the unique flavors and personalities that we have as we gather around the table. And so what we're going to be doing over the course of the first six weeks of this summer is we're going to be going through various areas of the globe and looking at perspectives from the different areas that we have. Um, And so today, we're going to be looking from a lens of a Korean, and more specifically, Korean-American perspective a little bit on the scripture and on what it means for Jesus and to follow Jesus. And the idea behind it is that we might learn from others. It's a simple idea, right? But it's kind of strange that different Christians around the globe view that phrase that I just said, learn from others, and their difference as threatening. And I've been there, friends, and that was me. I opened the Bible for the first time when I was in high school. And if you didn't know, high school and adolescence, there's this like transition within adolescent development where you're moving from concrete thinking, like that's how your brain is wired, to then be able to do abstract thinking. So, you know, you don't really teach philosophy in ninth grade to the ninth grade students because, you know, their brain just doesn't go to philosophy. Some kids do, but like it's just not wired to this really general abstract thinking. And so it doesn't surprise you that when I jumped into the Bible for the first time, I was looking for the answers. Has anyone ever opened the Bible and looked for the answers for things? Where you want to know what it says and how it says it and why it says it? I can't tell you how many people uh, have looked to me in the context of a Bible study, not because they want to hear my perspective, but because they want to know the answer to the scripture. They want to know what it says. And as a high school student with concrete thinking like wired into my brain, that's exactly what I wanted to do is to know the Bible and what it said. And so it was surprising then when I went into college after going through high school and finding all the answers, right? I was very confident of them. Went to college and all of a sudden these professors had the audacity to say there are different ways to read it. (laughs) I actually had a a class later on in uh, undergrad. It was called History of Biblical Interpretation. Now, doesn't that sound fun, right? You know, like all of you signed up. The History of Biblical Interpretation, the main theme from it was that the Bible has been used throughout the millennia differently by God's people. And that doesn't mean that some are less faithful and more faithful. It just means that we see it differently. 
And last week I talked a little bit about this, that we live in the era of like kind of modernity where people want to know the answer and they seek after the specific truth. But that's not how the Bible was ever intended. And I don't necessarily think it's how God intends it to be either. So a little heady, let me back up a little moment. I'm not going to be here. So in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be gone. I'm going to be going to Minnesota with my kids, and then I'm going to be at annual conference in California. And so I'm going to miss Father's Day with you all. So you can have a little bit of Father's Day story. Is that okay? Because I'm going to miss it with you. Um, and so one of the goals of being a father has been realized over the past year. And that goal was all of a sudden, I could sit and play video games with my kids, and they would be at a level that they could understand the game and they could play it with me and they could even do it better than me. I've been waiting for this moment. I grew up playing video games and I, I love the idea of just like sitting around and playing one game in specific, Zelda. And it came out, a new one came out just like a month ago, right? And so I, we've been excited and we've been holding off. But like, I tell you what, friends, I've been excited about this moment, but it is vastly different than when I grew up as a kid. I mean, when I grew up as a kid, it's like a Nintendo and you would turn it on and you maybe could save it, but usually what you do is just play it until you died. And then you'd get this like, bum, 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 game over screen. And you have to restart from the beginning. And you're like, ah, shucks, right? If there's one thing true about it is that the adventures of these video games were very much specific. They were linear. Like you go get your sword, you save Princess Zelda, you beat the boss. Like you do A, then you do B, then you do C. It's, it's the way we played our games. Like Mario, some of, I imagine if you're not a video gamer, you've at least heard of that game, right? It's like level one goes to what next? Level two, right? Like it's just A, B, C. If you've been around your grandkids or your own kids, you'll know that the games nowadays are not like that at all. Like they are the complete opposite. Like these games are like wide open, like seriously wide open. Like you could literally in the last Zelda game that came out could go straight to the boss, the immediate, like the first 10 minutes of the game. You can finish like the tutorial and then go fight the boss. Of course you'd probably lose, right? But the idea is that the game is so wide open that you can make any mistake. You can save it and go back to it, so no more game over and the game's done. But like, you can do whatever you want. And the makers of this new game that just came out with my kids, Zelda, The Tears of the Kingdom, they've like capitalized on this even more. Because it's not only can like, you do these things in whatever order you want, but like now they have this like thing where you can like get these weapons, like a sword and shields. And it's not just like these ones that you go search out. It's like you can fuse them together with any object in the game. So you can find like a mushroom and like an eyeball from a monster and you put them together and see what it does. It's crazy the things that they can do. Like I remember most complicated game that I played, I had this thing called a walkthrough, right? I really wanted to do all the things in the game. And you know what my kids do now when they play this game? They have their iPad next to them and they like search up anything that they want to do, right? Because like you can find it all on the internet and it's like, like they're going here and they're going there and you're just trying to keep up. Like, what are you doing in the game? It's so different. That's a very tangible way to describe what's happened in post-modernity. Like there are different ways to do things like playing a game. There's no single way anymore, and the different ways are not bad, they're different. And people find their way to fuse their creativity within it. 
And, and I say that because the way, the truth, the life, when Jesus says those words, for us, many of us, we hear it as like the way, the truth, the life. When I don't believe that was God's intention, and that hasn't been the intention of the Bible. More so, God's intention for us is that we explore this journey of faith with the tools we have and the creativity so that we can bring our interpretations to the text and that we can ask the questions and the unique things. In the same way I've had people say, look to me for the answers, I've had so many people in the context of the Bible say something to the matter of, well, I'm not sure that this is right thinking, but this is kind of my thoughts on the matter, right? I'm not sure that this is right thinking, but this is my interpretation. If you've ever said that out loud, friends, that is, that is okay. And one of the things that I've had to learn, especially moving to Hawaii out of North Carolina, is Hawaii is full of diversity in a way that it was diverse in North Carolina, but I wasn't interacting in diversity as much. North Carolina had lived into a heritage of uh, white churches not reconciling during uh, like Martin Luther civil Martin Luther King Jr. civil rights days. And so many of the churches in North Carolina find themselves as segregated still, not because they have to be, just because that's the decision that was made like 50 years ago and they haven't lived into something different. It's only been here in Hawaii and in this region of the United Methodist Church that we call the Cal Pack, which is like our region, Southern California, Hawaii, Guam and Saipan that have interacted with other clergy that are different. I moved to Hawaii in 2016, and I was one of two white pastors on island, in all of Hawaii. Me and Tim, who was your pastor here at this church, Tim Ellington, we're the only two surrounded by a sea of ethnic diverse pastors. And one of the predominant groups within our area are Korean pastors. And so I've had Reverend In Wong Jung preach for us on a number of occasions, who's down at Christ Church doing their English ministry there because our services were able to like do one and then go to the other. And you know, we had had uh, Joy Yoon as well, who came and preached, who's over at Kailamana. And we, we have these rich theologies. And as I've interacted with them, I've learned their stories. You want to know something I've come to learn? They have similarities, but they're different. <laughs> that all Korean pastors are not the same, and the Korean theologies are not the same. And I serve on the Board of Ordained Ministries, which is a fancy word for, like, as people are coming up, they want to serve God, they want to become ordained, and they have to be approved by a board. And I serve on that board. And one of the conversations that we have to remind ourselves over and over again is that your story is not their story that your story is not their story. I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't grow up reading the Bible. I didn't grow up with aspirations of being a pastor. I kind of fell into it because people were telling me that it was a good fit and that God's doors kind of like opened before me. And some of the people that are coming up to be pastors, they're like fourth generation Korean pastors, right? And then this has like been their dream since they were like five years old. And I, I just unrelatable to me and my call to ministry. My story is not their story. 
And in this book, uh, one of the ones that influences my ideas about um, how we might approach it from this, uh, The Heart of the Cross by Wonhei and Joe, she writes about this idea of the way of Jesus. Except for her story is different, right? She happens to be a Korean-American, but she happens to be heavily influenced by feminist and post-colonial theory and logic. And one of the things that she says that is kind of generalized to Korean-Americans especially is this idea of being the same but different. And she writes in her book about how she's marked throughout her life, even though she had been here for the majority of her life and was thoroughly American, she never quite felt like she was the same as Americans. There was always something about her that felt like it wasn't there, that it was the same but different. And many different minorities throughout the nation, especially mainland America, feel this, right? That they can't feel like as the predominant white conversation makes them feel like they have to be that. And even when they try to be it, the smallest little change to their behavior kind of marks them as ethnic, as Korean, or as African-American or as Hispanic-American, just like this little twist. And it becomes a point of pain for many minorities within the United States because they don't want to see themselves as different in a bad way, even when they're trying. And so one of the things that Wonhe does is she talks about this concept of mimicry, and this is super fancy, and I, Brittany, our children's ministry director, had to talk me down from my lecture. Don't worry, friends. It was named a post-colonial Christology, viewing Christ from the lens of a Korean-American. So that was the sermon that was headed your way, but she uh, stopped me on those tracks, so you're welcome for that. You can give her a high five or whatever later on. But the idea is that Wonhei talked about how this concept of mimicry, where you take it on, and you change it when you do it, is not a problem, but a point of power for telling our stories. So many times people try to fit in in a way that loses a piece of their story or their identity. I remember when I was in high school, I was trying to fit in. I was, you know, felt like I had to be like them. And so the weird, quirky things I did, like play Zelda on my free time, you know, like that sort of stuff, like the video games I like, I didn't want to share those with some friends because like that wasn't cool or hip to do that. And so you try to fit in and you lose that piece of your identity. And then you're left with something less than I think God intends. And so when she views this story of Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, she looks at the way that Christians have interpreted Jesus and the cross. For so many years, not for too many though, for the past 200, we've viewed the cross as this sort of seat of judgment, that we were all sinners and that you know, because we're sinners and God has a you know, punishment that's due to sinners, that Jesus had to die or someone had to die so that our sacrifice, you know, the punishment for that could be made and God's justice is fulfilled. And, you know, it's like the, the scene of a, a courtroom, right? You broke the law and now who's going to pay the fine, right? And Jesus is going to pay the fine. And so that's the way that we've, many of us in the West have interpreted it. 
And she pushes back and she says, sure, but that is driven out of this like punitive logic of Europeans. And so instead she wonders, how might I not become Christian and lose my identity as Korean? But how might some of those concepts that I grew up knowing and loving from my Korean culture influence my reading? And she holds on to these two words, Han and Zhang. Han is kind of this, you know, last week we talked about, like, there's these phrases in other languages that aren't easily translatable. Both of these are that. Han is kind of this idea of an imbalance. Not sin, but like, you know, there's like unjust thing that you did it wrong, but just like something out of whack, not in harmony with it. And then there's this concept of zheng, which is easily translated kind of as love, but it encompasses so much more of that. It encompasses like, you know, the, the sort of love that like goes to the hospital and sits with your loved one that's dealing with dementia or like uh, heart failure or the, the sort of love that like takes on the pain and kind of goes through these places, the sort of love that's communal, that we, we are all in this together and we share this thing called zheng with one another. And it's this like communal embodiment of love. And she talks about how Jesus embodies that, and how God in Jesus embodies this love. And she uses this idea of mimicry, this like theolo- like this like post-colonial theory, and says that Jesus, who's God, who's like the other, right, that doesn't fit in, comes and takes on that, but does it differently. He takes on the pain of our lives. And she starts reading this theologian that I really love. His name is Jürgen Moltmann. And he talks about how we should always have a crucifix, not a cross. And the difference is, is when Jesus is still on it, right? If you're Roman Catholic, you know what I'm talking about. Or if you grew up Roman Catholic, a crucifix is Jesus on the cross. And she said, we should, Moltmann said, you shouldn't get rid of the cross with Jesus on it. Because wherever there's suffering in the world, Jesus is there. And she reads that and she says that God, this other, when he takes this on, it's kind of like blending our experience with God's experience. And that the power of the cross is not like a hammer coming down on the judgment that's due, but the power of the cross is how Jesus embodies this sort of love that fits with the Korean concept of zheng, a love that's willing to walk through the pain, a love that's there in the, in the community and kind of drawing us in. That the power of the cross was that Jesus was willing to, to blend that, to embody this concept of love that's different than perhaps the way that we have seen the cross. And I could talk a little bit more about like what that means and we could you know, share about that. But like as she, as one hand, as you read her book and you, you hear her story, it, it, it kind of takes you out of what you're normally used to and sort of puts you over here and starts seeing this same story of Jesus on the cross, the way, the truth, the life, from a different way, a different truth, a different life. And it's not bad it's different. The cross, like many of our theologies that we have, beliefs of God, are not 
like a painting or like a, you know, like a, a thing. It's more like a diamond, right? Where like you look at it and there's different sides of it and not one is right and not one is wrong. They're different, but each of them has their own beauty, just like the different facets that you look at. And so I wonder how we can engage with those differences. Friends, we have Korean-American Christians all around us. We have Korean Christians all around us. To learn their stories, to hear their perspectives, to grow together. That's a charge for us, is that we can learn from our brothers and sisters. Did you know that the Korean-Americans not only, uh, Koreans are not only one of the most successful missions globally that the United Methodists ever endeavored on, and the churches did, and successful by nature of that they've owned it and they've taken it and they've made it their own, that some of the most vibrant churches in the world are in Korea. 60,000 people churches, like giant churches in Korea. And they're sending people all over the globe not to come to America to get a better life. They're sending people all over the globe to missionize, to teach the good news. And we can learn from the different perspectives of different Christians. And, you know, we find ourselves within the Methodist church at this tension, right, that's coming up. And if you haven't heard about it, you'll hear about it again. But we find ourselves splitting all over. In the next month, you're going to hear news article after news article because our regions of the Methodist churches are going to be gathering, and it's going to be like 198 in Georgia left the Methodist church. 200 in Alabama left, 50 in Colorado are leaving. Churches are leaving over this division of belief around same-sex marriage and same-sex clergy and how we view the Bible accordingly. And one of our problems that we currently have is that we're unwilling to listen to each other, to hear. And friends, I am adamantly wave my pride flag and enjoy and celebrate our Christians, brothers and sisters that are LGBT. But I've engaged with clergy and with lay people who are not. And that doesn't mean that they are wrong. It means that they are different. And I've had many conversations because our Korean Methodists are some of the ones that disagree with me on this. And I've learned so much about my faith from those conversations. It doesn't change my mind, but it lets us gather around the table so that we can share our stories. I don't need to be like them, and they don't need to be like me. We're the same, but different. And that is not a bad thing. That is a good thing. And friends, with our stories, this is the hope. Never, ever let your questions, your doubts, your, this is kind of how I view it, but I'm not sure it's right, stop you from sharing. Because your story matters. Your questions matter. Your perspective on life and faith are valuable. So let us come to the table where all are welcome. And let us come with our perspectives. And so hopefully we can embody this sort of love that Wonhe talks about in her book of Zheng, 
this Korean concept that embraces this communal, messy, painful experience. And we can find not the way, but the many ways. So let us go and be who God made us as. Let us gather around the table as we are. I invite you to pray with me. Holy and gracious God, we give thanks that you do not seek uniformity, but that you're hoping that we might engage with those that have different stories than our own. And that you encourage us to go on adventures, to use our creativity, to explore, to wonder, to question, to grow. And we give thanks for our Korean-American and our Korean brothers and sisters who aren't all the same either. But nonetheless, teach us different ways of viewing your story of Zhang in the world. Amen.